gotta have gut hope. It's gotta get better. It's gonna get better. You've got this. This is the Gut Hope Podcast. Gotta have gut hope. Gut hope. Hope. Inspiration. And healing. It can happen. Hello and welcome back to the Gut Hope Podcast. My name is Steve Collings. I'm joined by my new friend, Dee Dee. Dee's amazing. She's got a very cool story to share with everyone. She has extensive experience with uh, PTSD. And I think her views and learning about that and how that deals with IBD is going to be fascinating. And I hope you all enjoy this podcast. So without any further ado, I want to introduce Dee. How are you doing today? Hi, Steve. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me today. Great. I'm happy to have you on here. So, Didi, you have an interesting background because you've dealt with some serious illness and bowel issues over a long period of time, and you've come through that. You're on your own trajectory now, but let's start off with that. Do you want to go into a little bit of your history so people can understand what you've been through? Sure. So I think it's important to note right off the bat that my particular history with IBD and with um, several other health conditions, they're unique and my experience is a little unique because I have so many other things that are going on simultaneously. And basically it really all started, well actually, I like to say that it started when I was still in the womb because I kind of came out sick um really i had a yeah i had like several digestive symptoms that would wax and wane for years and over time i started experiencing like severe digestive distress and there was a time that i was actually treated for crohn's disease without ever having a full diagnosis um and this is because i didn't have a family doctor until 2009 so when I was 22 and I was graduating from college, um, I had become so sick that I was hospitalized for a few weeks during my finals. Hey, Dee Dee, let me interrupt you for just a second. Tell me about the fact that you were being treated for Crohn's without being diagnosed. What does that mean? In 2003, when I was experiencing a lot of digestive symptoms, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have a family doctor, so there was no way to really follow my case or my condition. So Mm -hmm. what they were doing was they would give me upper GIs, lower GIs, um, and and they were finding, like in the hospital setting, they were finding things like abscesses, fistulas, and that's how I was loosely diagnosed with Crohn's. But here's where it was interesting for me was because even though the biopsy and the pathology reports they didn't ever conclude that I had Crohn's disease. So it was kind of like a question mark. I was being treated for Crohn's, but I didn't have the official Crohn's disease diagnosis. Okay. 
So let's go back to college, and you were talking about your finals, mm-hmm. and that the teachers were being and professors were being very patient with you. Yes, they were. They were incredibly understanding, and they were lenient. Like some of the professors would allow me to to do the makeup exams, and then there were other professors that would just let my existing grade stand before finals. So I that was definitely something that was incredibly relieving to me at the time because when you're graduating from college you're thinking of moving on to the next step and I couldn't even get through my finals without being hospitalized so it was it was a really challenging time for me wow how did you get through that then I mean what what happened after that so my situation like I said is very different from 2003 to 2009 I was learning to live with the symptoms Um, I was never really in remission um, and I I actually ended up on the welfare system because I couldn't work no one was hiring the sick girl um, and I didn't I didn't really want to work for any of these companies anyway so I decided at that time I was gonna start my own business okay So that's exactly what I did. I started my own company after graduating from the social work program. And it's called Didi's ABC Services. And I was, at the time, I was working as a social worker with families who were in crisis that needed needed help. So I was the person that would kind of run into that building that was on fire when everyone else was trying to get out of it it was definitely crisis was what was my passion it's and I actually ended up continuing um, my education into 2010 where I ended up getting my master's in clinical psychology to become a crisis therapist wow so you have an interesting background of working with people who have been in this crisis mode Mm mm-hmm and here you are at the same time in your own little way having a s- mm. would you i don't want to say it's a minor crisis <laughs> but you're having no. you're you're go you're it sounds like you're having the symptoms of all of this but you're not being diagnosed and you're just trying to deal with a problem that you don't even know what it is is would that mm-hmm. be safe to say yeah i would say that that's very safe to say because yeah. no one was really looking that closely at me because like I said at the time without a, a family doctor sort of following the following my medical situation I was just being sort of observed and overlooked basically at, at the hospital so as my bowel health continued to flare with these daily episodes um, actually at one point I was on 11 different medications one actually that has now been discontinued because it's been known to cause the early onset of heart conditions. Wow. And that's actually something that I began experiencing the symptoms of at 25. So too young for heart disease, but my immune system didn't care. So DD was all of this without a diagnosis too? Yep, oh all without goodness. a diagnosis. Still. I don't want to jump ahead, but is that where we're going? Are you going to get diagnosed? <laughs> Uh, not for a while. Oh, no. Not for a while. <laughs> okay. So what happened next? So I, I managed. <laughs> you're doing this like as contract social work, basically. You're, you've got your own business. Yep. 
jumping into burning yes. buildings, so to speak. Um, yeah. What kind, just real briefly, what kind of crisis are you involved with, like the family abuse or what's what's happening at there? At the time, yes, yeah. yes. Mm. At, at the time, it was it was largely the things that nightmares are made of was mm. what I was dealing with on the on the daily. So there were a lot of a lot of families with abuse history with alcohol uh, drug drug use Mm -hmm. um and just i mean the really really the scary stuff it's Mm -hmm. what i was going in and i was dealing with wow and you're in the middle of Mm -hmm. it okay yes and now so throughout all of this i i i felt that i needed to find a way to manage these symptoms on my own since no one was really stepping in and doing that for me Mm -hmm. um i decided that okay i'm gonna try to follow a more natural route so by 2010 i had weaned myself off of almost all of the medications and i was actually starting to improve in terms of my bowel health but at the same time as my bowel health is starting to improve i actually started developing other symptoms of other autoimmune conditions okay so my hair started falling out in these small smooth patches all over the left side of my head it's it's actually a condition called alopecia areata it's an autoimmune condition where the body basically attacks itself thinking that the hair follicles are the enemy and then they lay down and let the hair fall out it's this horrible condition where your image is just constantly being attacked yeah i'm super familiar with that my sister has alopecia totalis and and uh yes so i know exactly what you're talking about it's really rough so you're I get what you're saying. I remember yeah. when she was starting to experience the exact same thing. It's just like completely bald patches on your head where mm-hmm. the rest of your hair seems normal, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and it tough. leaves you with this feeling of uh, of just tragic. For me, it was tragic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I experienced a lot of symptoms, but when my hair started to fall out, it felt like whatever was growing inside of me that was taking over was now taking parts of my esteem away it was starting to take my image into its grips and that was just something I wasn't prepared for yeah Mm -hmm. I saw this Mm -hmm. with my sister and I know uh the difficulty I mean my sister is still she's lost all her hair now on her body Mm. and it's it's a tough thing to deal with it's self-esteem and self-worth and everything but we just tell her bald is beautiful. That's what we say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it can take a while. It can take a while for the person to get to that place where they can be totally accepting of where they are. Sure. And and good for her for being able to to manage all of that on her own. I right. I still it, it, I still have it, and it and every time it happens, I it's definitely something that is still very difficult for me. Okay. So you you've that's one autoimmune disorder that you had. Did you have some other symptoms and problems come up too? Yes. Um, so shortly after, yeah, I know. (laughs) Yay. Yay. (laughs) So shortly after, um, the, the alopecia came to be, I started developing very debilitating pelvic pain. Um, like and I discovered that I had several uterine cysts and fibroids all over my uterus and 
I would have these surgeries, um, like surgery after surgery, and sure enough, they would all, they, they would come back. So by late 2010, I was diagnosed with another autoimmune condition, a very painful autoimmune condition called endometriosis. And this is where the tissue that is similar to the tissue that lines your uterus, um, it grows outside of your uterus and it can attach and grow on other organs. Mm. But this bleeding, however, it just doesn't have any place to exit. So it builds up as scar tissue inside oh. the system. That's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> it wasn't, it was not a pleasant time in my life. It just kind of felt like um, every time I was starting to get a grip on one condition, um, before one condition would resolve, another one would come in and take its place with much larger intensity. So I'm afraid to ask, uh, what was next? <laughs> right. <laughs> so in, in 2011, I started experiencing um, a worsening heart arrhythmia. Um, it was not long before I actually needed to start treatment, like medi medicine for mm -hmm. this. And it took, uh, it took the better part of two years to get the heart under control. But again, not before in 2013 when I started to develop more symptoms of another autoimmune condition. I developed a rash over the bridge of my face. Um, I became very sensitive to sounds, to smells. I would become very easily nauseated. And uh, the fatigue that I was experiencing in 2013 um, turned into lethargy, basically. I, mm -hmm. I couldn't perform day-to-day -day activities. My, my brain felt compromised. My body felt compromised. And I was diagnosed with something called a lupus-like syndrome. Mm. So lupus, which is a chronic inflammatory connective tissue slash autoimmune disease that can affect the joints, the organs, the skin, uh, the heart, the lungs, the nervous system, basically you name it, but it's a very difficult disease to diagnose. And for me, because I had only two out of the three tests for lupus come back positive, and not all three, it could only be labeled a lupus-like syndrome, which okay. was very difficult, again, because it's not an official diagnosis. I have all of these symptoms, but in the medical world, they weren't able to appropriately treat me without an official diagnosis. Okay. And so because you didn't get the right label, they weren't able mm -hmm. to give you the right meds? Is that kind of where you're going with that? That's, that's yeah. right. That's okay. right. So, uh, so again, it was, it was one of these things like how do I, how do I manage this? The, the, the symptoms of, of lupus, were they were so severe for me. I was beginning to have difficulty with, with just even pain medication. Mm -hmm. um, the pain medication was causing very unpleasant side effects that and, and no doctor could tell me why. No one could could dive into this and, and understand this for me. Not to mention by 2014, my digestive symptoms were now returning. And there was just no end in sight there. I had a colonoscopy at the time, which actually said no Crohn's or ulcerations, but lots of inflammation. And to my knowledge, inflammation on a colonoscopy is colitis. So it was confusing. I didn't know 
what I was supposed to be doing. I tried every single diet that I could think of, like the grain-free diet, gluten-free, uh-huh. keto, paleo, anything I could try, and nothing was nothing was working. Wow. So was that yeah. your first colonoscopy that you got after? I mean, in your life, or oh no, no, oh, okay. no. I I had several early on in the when my digestive symptoms were uh, pressing in 2003 to 2005 but they never like I said they they when they would um, do the colonoscopy in 2003 to 2005 they would always find with the biopsies that nothing was really coming back conclusive so that's where it was just complicated can we just take a minute and talk about how all of this felt combined I mean I'm just every time I hear a story Mm -hmm. I try to put myself in your shoes and I just Mm -hmm. You know, I can't imagine this like one thing after another after another, and then you get to lupus-like syndrome where you're like, mm-hmm. I've got all these problems th- that you know all over my body that I could tie to that. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking was, in your head? Like, where was your head at? Where you go? What's wrong with me? <laughs> with my body? Like one thing it after was another. It was definitely something that I mean. At the time, I felt like I was allowing myself the appropriate amount of time to to deal with it. But mm-hmm. what I would do is I would feel really bad, and I would feel really, you know, this this sense of sorrow for myself. But I wouldn't allow myself to stay there long because that feeling was extremely uncomfortable. So what I did was I I, I did what I do best, which is push past it. Mm-hmm. and just move on like i would always say move forward move move towards something better and at that time in my life when all of these things were piling it felt like that was the right thing to do so i i researched everything mm-hmm. i i decided if nobody else is going to be helping me drive this car i need to put myself back in the driver's seat so I started seeing a naturopath who suggested that I start taking a probiotic. And this was very helpful to me for a while, but unfortunately so many other of my so many other symptoms were just raging out of control. Mm-hmm. So Didi, I know this is tough to talk about. I really appreciate your openness and honesty. I mean, mm-hmm. I would start off by saying I know you're not alone because I've read other people's stories that where mm-hmm. it just starts piling on. Mm-hmm. And I admire that you've pushed through things. Mm-hmm. But, um, and you're talking about very personal, That's that was your choice to do this. How was your family and friends reacting to your health at this time? So at this time, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I always look at it as, as, as this moment um, before the actual diagnosis of of UC so mm-hmm. life before UC oh um, boy. yeah my family and friends were as supportive as they as they could be I found um, I, I found a lot of solace with sharing partial truths with with people in my life but realizing I can't share the heavy stuff the stuff where it's emotional mm-hmm. because I was the person in their lives that was really strong and could handle things and I would be the person that would pick up those pieces when other people were were broken 
and I started to fracture. I started to become the person that was needing things and didn't know how to ask for it. I didn't know how to receive the type of help that I was looking for. And so I kind of would only give people what I thought they could handle and what I could handle telling them. So Mm -hmm. it was a lot of details, but shielding them from the emotional challenge of it. Well, that's heavy stuff. That's a yeah. that's a big load to carry. I can imagine all of your family and friends are thinking, you know, Dee Dee, she's the firefighter, right? She's right. she knows how to handle big problems. And here you are in the middle of it, not sure if you can share what you can share with everybody. This must have been a very tough spot to be in. It was, but I want to be really clear that it 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 wasn't through any fault of their own. It was it was me who didn't understand what was happening to me sure. the complexity of it and i didn't know how to navigate the emotional terrain of this right so because i didn't know how to do that i couldn't expect that of anyone else around me well one thing i hope that just sharing this story other people will hear this and go okay what did dd do you know how did she get through right. this <laughs> you know i think you have a story of hope and inspiration and and uh, it, it, it's important that we share how difficult things were mm-hmm. before they get better. But um, yep, yep, that's I true. appreciate you sharing that. So you mentioned that you were doing probiotics, but that wasn't yes. solving the multitude of issues. So what did you try next? Well, um, the probiotics were helping with the digestive condition, like the digestive system but it wasn't helping with the other symptoms that were sort of piling on simultaneously. Right. So yeah. at this time, as the probiotics were helping for one thing, I started developing even more rashes and welts and hives for what seemed like no apparent reason. Um, these hives and welts, they would worsen with weather, but eventually it just got to the point where it was happening on its own. So. When I went to the doctor and we did some testing, it, they called it um, idiopathic angioedema, which idiopathic means the cause is unknown and angioedema is like severe swelling. So there were times that my lips would look like injectables gone like super wrong, like mm. the duck face gone really, really wrong and my hands. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I remember one doctor actually saying to me, um, are you trying to look like a Kardashian? Oh, gosh, thank like, you. No, I didn't do this on purpose. <laughs> this is literally happening to me, but thanks. <laughs> how did you, honestly, how did you feel about it? Did you laugh that off or were you insulted? Oh, totally. Okay, no, ne- good. I was not insulted. Good. I totally laughed that off. Good. I would actually, I would take videos of my se- myself like this and I would send them to people asking them if they still found me attractive with these huge duck lips. It was just, I thought it was hilarious. Okay. But it was painful. It was, it was painful as well. And my hands, they would swell up and they would look like inflated latex gloves. Mm. It was just so bizarre. Then the swelling would start to happen in, um you know, more private areas where you don't want swelling. Roger that. So, 
Yeah. So it would take about, you know, 48 hours for the swelling to calm down in one area only to have it resurface somewhere else. And this would get very painful. It would split my skin. It would split my lips and the wow. rashes would practically burn the skin from my on my body. And mm -hmm. there were moments where I couldn't stand to wear any clothing. So the problem at this point is I'm now allergic to all kinds of medication. Meds are doing this to me and the mm. medication that they're giving me to treat the allergies are causing more of the symptoms. So that meant no antihistamines. How did you no figure NSAIDs. that out, Didi? How did you decide well, that the medicine was the problem? Actually, my, my natural path was very helpful. Mm. Uh, one of my natural paths was very helpful to me in that in that period of time because she was suggesting that there's a link between um, angioedema, urticaria, and um, and NSAIDs. So I started doing my own experimenting with taking out the NSAIDs and seeing if the symptoms would get better. Mm -hmm. And they did. I was actually. It wasn't that they were completely resolved. But I did notice that they worsened and they were they would become extreme if I was taking different medications. And it was very apparent and obvious when I would take Benadryl that things would just worsen within 12 hours that you could really tie it to what you had just taken. So for, for me, it was like I I am staying away from I'm going to stay away from most meds if I can help it, because I do not want to be experiencing I don't want to be experiencing this this level of swelling and this level of pain. It was, it was too difficult. Even when I was trying to bring levity into the situation, there's right. only so much that you can do before it really starts taking a toll on your psyche. Well, I think you just made like a major discovery. I mean, you, you think that your hands are swelling, so you take Benadryl to help it, or mm -hmm. you have some mm -hmm. other symptom. I mean, figuring out that the Benadryl is actually causing you a problem and yeah. it's not just the symptom getting worse, that the Benadryl right. didn't work. Right. Wow, so that's right. a really, and you're ex really experimenting on yourself, which is so much what we yeah. have to do sometimes. We have to use our yes. intuition and go, okay, let me try this. You know, no doctor's gonna tell you to stop taking something. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly. really cool. So you cool. have to get creative. Yeah, mm. good. So after several years of living with this and 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 sort of navigating that world, I was eventually diagnosed with another autoimmune disease called mast cell activation syndrome. And mast cell activation syndrome is a condition where the mast cells in your body, they release too much of a substance that causes those allergy-like symptoms and for me it was histamine so my body was producing too much histamine and mistaking normal everyday things like medication mm -hmm. thinking that that medicine is attacking me so my immune system runs on overdrive it thinks it's protecting me and in reality it's it's just not right wow yeah so i've lost count but uh, how many autoimmune disorders are we up to now here? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I mean, actually, you know, it's funny about this whole thing. I'm, I'm so organized in so many ways, and this is not something I'm trying to count, okay. if that makes any All sense. Right. Well, I don't want to make you count it, but it, no, it's no. at least five or six. Right. It's a lot. Right? Okay. All right. So, We're not going to cause any stress and make you <laughs> count them. All right. Keep going. So I, I again, I, 
I turned to my trusted research method and I decided to see if I could if I could handle this situation with natural remedies since I could no longer take medications safely. Mm. And this method, of course, it helped for a while, but then I started having different trouble in different areas. Like I was experiencing trouble with balance and walking. And I do remember after finding out about lupus, I was worried constantly that, okay, oh my gosh, by 40, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. And I wanted so much to avoid this. So uh -huh. I, I did the very best that I could to just to research everything and and take everything that I could that could possibly help me. But by 2018, I was showing just more symptoms of things that had yet to be discovered. Like I was, I had bladder symptoms that were concerning. I was incontinent with urgency and frequency in the bladder. I was then having worsening bowel issues and and was eventually becoming incontinent with the bowels and no one and I'm talking no one could tell me what was wrong. My legs started to go numb and I was losing feeling in both legs, bilateral leg numbness really, really fast. So Whoa. at this point in, in 2018, and it happened really, really quickly, I was dependent on a walker and a cane to get around. And the doctors eventually had me in an MRI and the MRI revealed a mass on my spine that was compressing the nerves. But mm -hmm. the doctors, the doctors would say, well, this mass is incidental and it wouldn't be causing these issues because it's not located in the exact right place for it to be causing the issues, which was just so, it, it was so, they were looking at it so technically and not seeing it as a, as a really big picture. And so I, I knew that I needed to do something about this. They sent me home as I'm deteriorating, but I was determined that I was going to find the solution to all of these issues because this is what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm the problem solver, mm -hmm. or at least I, I was at that time that there's, I to think to myself, there's nothing that I can't do. So I did what I do best and I researched. So my chiropractor started treating me um, as well as my naturopath. I, I remember getting into acupuncture and I don't know if you've ever heard of cupping, but um, the acupuncturist was using cups on my spine and within about six weeks, I was walking again on my own, no surgery. And I remember feeling like, okay, Dee Dee, this is it. You are about to turn that corner. This is it. And then 2019 hit. Okay. And I started experiencing new symptoms. Can I ask how old you are at this time? I mean. Yeah. So in 2019, I was 40. 40 years old. And yeah. you're walking around with a cane and yeah. wondering what's going on. Yes. And, and the, the doctors didn't do anything with the mass no. that was on your spine. They just like, no, no, no. just live with that. that. That's right, because the doctors here in Canada, um, they didn't believe that the mass was causing the, the issues. But I, I did get in touch with um, a specialist in the States, mm -hmm. in Texas, actually, um, and sent him my MRI, sent him all of my information, and he was able to... Um, conclude that absolutely it's causing these issues and um mm. there was a surgery that was uh, that was available but it was very expensive and i actually felt i felt relief when 
this doctor was saying this is what you have because I wanted the knowledge of it and if I could learn this is what I've got then I'm going to take this information to my trusted practitioners and we are going to find a solution to that and that's exactly what we did with the chiropractor treating me and with acupuncture I was able to get to the point of where I wasn't walking on my own to where I was again so this was good it made me feel like I was I was I was successful but like I said with me it was once one thing is starting to resolve something else creeps in before there's that real resolve so so in 2019 I started experiencing new symptoms again it was they're totally different this time it was dizziness upon standing ringing in the ears and and then eventually I started fainting so super super scary yeah and an additional symptom which was actually to me it was the most debilitating symptom at the time was um living with chronic and daily nausea like you know that feeling right before you vomit when you're shaking and you're sweating and you you just know exactly what's about to happen oh yeah i lived in that experience because i wasn't i couldn't vomit but i was living in that that moment where right before you vomit and i it was just the most crippling symptom that i had and the interesting thing about all of this is that the nausea i still experience this even today daily it's not at that level but we still don't know where that symptom was or why it came to be this way we still don't know what caused it but that's a symptom that's never fully left wow interestingly enough yeah yeah and so when you say I'm experiencing nausea to a doctor or somebody, they just really don't comprehend, I bet, how no, debilitating they, that. It's not like I feel like I need to throw up. It's like a constant feeling. Yeah. It's it's Ugh. like I'm 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 about to and and it's not happening. Oh, and, that sounds terrible. And so at the hospital, the doctors would prescribe me several different types of nausea medication none of which worked at all um in fact all of the medications were causing the angioedema and the urticaria symptoms and not just that but um they were they had prescribed me cancer grade medication for nausea and it didn't touch it and so are you just finding this over and over again that whatever medication i'm taking i end up having a worse symptom I'm having it's not actually helping me it's causing me more problems yeah yes it was it it became this battle inside my own head like what is worse you know it, the, living with the symptom of the new condition or dealing with the medication that's supposed to help me but it's going to harm me right. so it, it was just this daily battle of trying to figure out what what was best for me and not really knowing how how to pursue that yeah um you as you're talking about that it reminds me like every time you see a commercial for a medication or something they always talk about all the bad side effects that may happen oh yeah and and you kind of accept that like well it's it's okay that i kind of accept those bad things you know that's that's where I was at. You're trying yeah. to choose the lesser of two evils because you understand at some point that something has to help, but what do I have to go through in order to get that relief? 
Wow. What do I have to sacrifice for it? Right. That's a terrible position to be in, to have to make that choice. Yeah, it, it didn't feel good. But like I said, my my personality at the time was very much don't don't dwell in this feeling for too long don't don't sit here move through push through so Mm -hmm. that's what I was doing but every time I would find myself pushing past the the condition or pushing past the experience something else would happen and I I do remember a very very vivid memory of in October 2019 I was standing at the kitchen sink just doing dishes and I felt really uncomfortable and I fainted and I I woke up I called my husband at work and I went to the hospital and while I was at the hospital in the waiting room I fainted three more times oh but the tests they couldn't find anything wrong according to the test so they sent me home with an appointment with an internist and when I was at home, my fainting episodes were now happening every few hours. It was, it was absolutely terrifying. Oh, I can't even it's, imagine that. Right. right. I, I mean, and I, I was having a hard time trying to, to manage it. And after several months of this, I learned that I had developed a, another condition called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's POTS for short. Oh. Um, have you ever heard of that? I have, yeah. Oh, okay. That goes so, undiagnosed many, many times, right? Like, yes. That's, it's, yes. Yeah. It's definitely another one of those autoimmune conditions that isn't really recognized in the medical community, but after a certain point, or it's definitely something that internists and things like that, that they will take into consideration as basically a last resort. Hmm. But it's it's uh it's a condition involving the autonomic nervous system and this is the system that controls your breathing your heart rate your blood flow and people with POTS they we don't have great blood flow to begin with so our blood can pool upon standing so when someone is standing up from that seated position their heart rate increases substantially without calming down and their blood pressure just drops so that's what's causing the dizziness and the fainting and from what I understand, very little can be done for this condition, and it's just really, really poorly understood by the medical community. And so, to be safe, were you just staying in bed, or were you trying to function? How, so, what's life like with all of this going? Are you keeping your job going? Yeah, what's, I was. I was still working. I was still working. Uh, I mean, that was the thing. No matter what I was doing, I was. I was still working. I. I, I probably should mention by this time in uh in 2019 after i had gone back to school to get my masters i i changed the nature of my practice and i changed it to to family crisis therapy so i was having families come into the home that would have a lot of um internal issues going on in the family system and i would the same kind of thing like i was going in and i was helping but i wasn't dealing with the the nature of what I was dealing with in the past. So I wasn't dealing with heavy, heavy abuse issues, alcohol issues, drug issues, even mm-hmm. though that was still present in some of these families, I was starting to deal with high, like risky behaviors. I was dealing with um, aggressive kids and how the family unit as a whole could learn to communicate better with each other and learn how to get through these really, really trying times in their in their family. Okay. So I was working a lot with spectrum disorders and 
so the job itself was um, was not as high pressured, um, needing to run into that burning building, but the job was providing me with such a feeling of of satisfaction and purpose, and I loved what I did. So I couldn't imagine not doing it. And I remember thinking at one point if I'm not working, then things must be really, really wrong. So I'm just going to continue working through it the best that I can. So that that's what I was doing. I was, yes, I was continuing to work, but I needed to call my mom to basically fly down 20 hours and I needed her to, to, to babysit me and make sure that as I'm having a fainting episode that we're moving furniture out of the way that I could possibly fall onto and hurt myself or get a concussion things like that so she was instrumental um during those during those weeks where it was really really bad just to make sure that I was safe tell me tell me it's gonna get better it does (laughs) okay it it does but it it's unfortunately it gets worse before it gets better and um what we're heading into is the is the UC diagnosis next okay let's go there so as all of these other symptoms were, I was still experiencing all of them by March 2020, basically right when the pandemic had hit and took hold, I was starting to notice more symptoms. I was getting really unusual symptoms for me too. Like I was getting a daily headache in a very specific spot on my head and mm-hmm. my eyelashes began turning inward and then they started falling out. It was really unusual and my joints began aching more and more than my normal and then there was the bleeding um so we're gonna get graphic here for a moment so okay i guess warning yeah Um, there was blood in the stool yeah uh the stool was covered in mucus and in a matter of weeks there was a considerable amount of blood exiting the rectum with or without a bowel movement and I was frequenting the hospital at this time and at the hospital they prepared me there they I remember them saying you know this does sound like ulcerative colitis and so they scheduled um, another colonoscopy for me on June 20th 2020 yeah so I was you know between April and June my symptoms were just worsening by the day turning from four bowel movements a day to 20 accompanied by just severe abdominal pain and cramping and on top of that on june 13th so this is a week before the colonoscopy i developed a really serious uterine bleed the bleed was so severe that i was losing blood flat like i was losing blood faster than i was making it and at the hospital they of course they ran the tests to try to figure out where is this bleed coming from why is it happening and everyone just came up empty and they attempted to treat me with medication that I, of course, had a, a severe reaction to, and the medication didn't even stop the bleeding. So my hemoglobin is dropping, and I was just mentally and emotionally, I was preparing for the worst. And I hadn't even yet been diagnosed with the UC, but the UC seemed to be the furthest thing from my mind in that moment because the bleeding was so extreme, wow. and I, I couldn't move. I couldn't. I couldn't move without it flooding out of me and I was I was honestly I felt so sure that I was going to die so I I did something I I never do I I posted on Facebook what was happening and I decided to ask people to collectively pray for me 
and I, I asked for a very specific time. I said 7 p.m. June 14th, please um, pray with me and let's help stop this bleeding. Actually, my family doctor um, got on this as well, and she said, I'm praying for you at 7 p.m. as well. And, you know, I mean, in one sense, that was that was so beautiful. But at the same time, I was like, when your family doctor is praying for you because because nothing else is working, that's not really inspiring me with a whole lot of confidence in the medical world right now. Mm. But, you know, I will tell you that when everyone prayed for me, something really miraculous happened. That that uncontrollable bleed that nobody could stop became like a whisper within 24 hours of prayer. Wow. Yeah. So something happened in, in, in those collective moments with other people where our energy was, our, our belief, our, our prayers were coming together we were all coming together for one main purpose and one main goal and it felt good to finally have a win you know yeah yeah it felt necessary for me at that time because a week later my life was completely upended june 20th 2020 i i say that is the day that fractured my life into two parts it was the day I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and my life in total now belongs to life before diagnosis and life since. Out of all this stuff you've been through. Yes. Yes. Somehow. Yes. Being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis is this milestone before. Yes. Like BC only it's B-U-C before. Oh my gosh, that's clever. Is that right? I mean... Yeah, yeah, yes. Are you looking at a calendar while we're talking about all this no, stuff? Or is no, this all I, in your head? It's just, it's just so... This is imprinted uh, in my in in the deepest constructs of my memory. Yeah. It's not something that I can remove now. It's, it's all things that have happened that I just can't uh, remove. I know what you mean. Uh, I can talk about my son's uh, diagnosis and everything the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I, it, but the healing is a milestone for me. That's the yes. one I sit there and measure everything off of now. So oh, of course, yeah. That that's interesting how we just get this impregnated in our heads that day. You know, it's true because it, you just true. don't forget it. It's and you start measuring everything off of it. How long have I been better? And uh, right in your case, how long have I had this? Right? How long? Exactly. And the reason why I say that it fractured my life into two parts is because everything that happened to me before June 20th, although incredibly scary and unknown, I never really, and this is going to sound odd, I think, but I never really looked at everything as life-threatening. And after June 20th, I I did. Everything, because unfortunately, what we're going to learn is that it became life-threatening. Wow. Why did you feel that ulcerative colitis, after all these diagnoses that you've had, mm-hmm. what was it about ulcerative colitis that made it um, so life-threatening for you? Or not, I shouldn't yeah. say life-threatening, but why did, it, why did this one hit you so hard? Well, to put it frankly, yeah. um, it's because my life became threatened after the diagnosis and severely threatened. Okay, so tell us about what happened then. So my my symptoms 
very quickly they escalated from 20 times a day using the bathroom to 60 and oh, on geez. a good day <laughs> on a good day i was rushing to the washroom every 10 minutes and on a bad day i would crawl back into bed two and a half minutes later i would have to rush back it was it was absolutely atrocious um, I developed a condition, and I think most IBDers will know what this is. I developed a condition called um, tensimus. You okay. familiar with that? No. It's it's where you feel the need to urgently pass the stool even when the bowel is empty. It's kind of like an involuntary pushing and straining. Actually, I liken it to the feeling of um, like dry heaving, but uh -huh. through your back end. Okay. So. That was a condition that I developed along with this. And as the GI uh, doctor was trying to grapple with all of this, I'm just worsening by the what felt like the minute. Mm -hmm. I was allergic to the five ASAs. Um, I did not have a good reaction to the Onticort, the steroids. They were worsening my cardiac issues. So I was taken off those. And the Pentessa enema um, was causing angioedema at the insertion site. So that was a no-go for me as well. Um, I had taken the genetic testing for the drug called um, azathioprine, which uh -huh. I know you are familiar with. Yep. And that, th the testing came back positive for the likelihood of developing pancreatitis. So, and pancreatitis is a very painful condition where the right. pancreas inflames, causing the inability to digest fats. And with repeated episodes, the pancreas will begin to die off and eat itself. And 20% uh, of people actually, they die from an acute pancreatitis attack. So needless to say, I didn't want to risk that at all. So I didn't, I didn't take that medication. We considered the, um, as a thiaprene, we considered that a fail. So I w here I am, I'm no meds worsening condition but determined to find a way to help myself and that's when I found Dr. Snow so I found him July 3rd 2020 um, and that's when I started his protocol and I just remember talking to him being so scared and not realizing at the time that he was exactly what I needed I needed someone to tell me this is going to get better. I am going to see you through this. Everything that he said about what was happening inside the gut with the mucosal lining, it, it all made sense to me. Mm -hmm. And and at this point, as anyone is in their IBD journey, we are desperate to, to have hope. We are desperate to build on something. And, and for me, I had nothing. I had nothing to build on. So when he came to me and I distinctly remember him saying, Didi, I'm going to heal you. And that was the music that I needed. That was the music to my ears that I needed to hear. I felt so much better having having him in my corner. Yeah, it's powerful. I remember him saying the same stuff yeah. to my son and and actually being able to believe it. Yeah. You know, I the same his GI doctor said the same thing. We're going to make you a healthy young man again. You have my promise. You know, wow. and it's like, I didn't believe that one bit. No, how could you? <laughs> it's like, you, you don't even know what you're going to do next, right? You, right. I, how can you even say that? That you're going to try another drug and make make somebody feel better? 
but I, I had the same impression talking to Snow, and I think there's a lot of power in that. Um, well, there's a lot of someone, power in belief. Yeah, yeah, you and, believe it. And when so, like, because our belief is ripped from us when we keep trying one thing and it's not working. And sometimes all we need is that person to come along into our corner and say, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to get you there because right. that's what I needed. If, if you remember, I was the person that would build all the plans, do all the <laughs> research, and, and I was coming up empty. I could not fix myself. I could not get myself to that point. And if I couldn't do it, how was I, how could anybody else? But here's Dr. Snow basically coming in saying, I'm going to fix you. Not let me see what I can do. It was, I'm going to fix you. I believed him, my husband believed him, and my parents put all of their faith and trust in him. And I will tell you, it was not long initially when we started the protocol, there were a couple of hiccups, but I started to have a reduction in my UC symptoms within two weeks. And it was really, it was incredible because it was the first time in a really long time that I was able to use my legs. I was walking and I was walking on my own. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you're starting to see other positive side effects of, yes. of being on the protocol. It was, it was, I felt it starting to work. Uh, okay. And, and so this was, this was amazing. And unfortunately, this, at the same time, I have these other symptoms. I have these other conditions that mm-hmm. weren't as controlled. And so by August, um, the urgency with the, uh, with the ulcerative colitis was definitely becoming less frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I remember telling Dr. Snow, like, because the urgency was less, but I was still, I was still experiencing a lot of like bleeding, a lot of blood. And I would say to him, you know, what I'm seeing in the toilet is still horrifying. And he's like, well, what are you seeing? And I said, well, it looks like roadkill in a blender, but there's very little pain. So he was, he's like, this is good. I was going to say, let me guess what he said. That's great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This, this is good. Like we, this is the thing that we want is for the, for the pain, for the pain to be under control. He's like the bleeding we can take care of, you know, that's, that's from all that inflammation. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's see how the protocol is still working. And with me, the protocol was difficult because I, my body is very sensitive to the introduction of new things. So Mm -hmm. even though the protocol itself was natural, I was still having some reaction to the, to the, to the protocol as it was being tweaked at the beginning. So it was a very long process, but I was very cautiously optimistic. But like I said, there were other conditions that were still flaring and becoming problematic. Yeah, that's what I was wondering with all of your history of having such bad reactions of putting anything yes. medicinal in your body, how your body reacted to any of the um, supplements that that would be part of the GI protocol. Was there something that you had to pull out that was just not working, like colostrum? Yes, or? at the time it was. Um, he put me on marshmallow root, mm-hmm. um, mastic caps. That mastic, I, and I couldn't. I couldn't take that. I had to take that out. And marshmallow root powder was not something that my digestive tract at the time was handling. So I had to remove that. I was on um, L-glutamine. Uh, I was on the colostrum 
and the the probiotics and that's sort of how we started so it was a mild form of the protocol but it was all like i said it was already within two weeks it was it was starting to to help that must have been amazing to be able to get up and start feeling your legs working again oh it was you know when you're it, you're not even yeah, trying to treat that symptom you know oh my gosh it it, it was it, i i was so the type of person at the time that once things would come in that felt good i just wanted to piggyback off that feeling all day yeah. like i just i was like all right this is a party this is going to feel amazing i'm going to go for a walk i'm going to walk 10 miles you know i mean just really unrealistic expectations of myself but all i wanted to do was just relish in the moment of feeling good mm -hmm. so by mid-august so i'd been on the protocol for um a month yeah. But my by mid-August, the uterine bleed came back. Oh, and this no. time it wasn't just the uterus. It was, the bleed was now coming from the bladder. More specifically, it was, um, it was, it was coming from my uh, urethra. Okay. Um, it was a very terrifying experience. But we, c what we were able to conclude was that my endometriosis at this point had spread now. So the endometriosis had spread to the bowel and now to the bladder. And there was just no way of stopping this and this is where things started to to change for me emotionally okay so emotionally this was challenging just that feeling of starting to relax and and then to have this other major crisis happening another rush to the hospital another threat there's no treatment for me and i started to become very fearful of the bathroom it's just like most of my conditions were centered around the most private parts of me and mm -hmm. I felt completely abandoned by my own body and I had to force myself to normalize the experience of seeing just massive amounts of blood telling myself this isn't dangerous but it it all felt dangerous mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel this fear creeping into my regular life and even as the endometrial bleeding was slowing and it was it slowed down I thought okay back to my normal yes but at this point that became impossible I remember I tried to go somewhere a few days after when things started to settle and mm -hmm. um, I, I got in my car I started driving and it happened to be in the same direction as the hospital and I wasn't aware of this yet but my body was my body was aware of going in the same direction and it started to tremble my heart started racing and this fear was just gripping me and it, it felt like somebody was choking me I didn't understand what was happening then the way that I do now that my body was having a trauma response being directly triggered by driving towards the hospital in the van because that's what my body was programmed to do now at this point when it gets in the van it's conditioned to prepare for the fight for survival and my brain was having a wiring issue because I, I wasn't in any physical danger at that time, but my body remembered this mm -hmm. and it couldn't deal with it. Wow, so this is the first time you experienced a trauma-like yes. experience and you had no idea what was going on. No, I had no, and the, I think the absurdity of it is that I work with trauma. It's, mm -hmm. it's one of my specialties. And I, I couldn't recognize this in my own person. Mm -hmm. I thought there was something wrong with me. I, I would do my best to overcome again. You know, I would, I would want to uh, overcome that feeling and push past it. You know, just find that good. Look for that silver lining. 
which is it's a really good it's a really good thing to do that if you're able to process what's happening to you but at the same time if you're not able to process it it becomes toxic and you will dismiss how you're really feeling and when that doesn't go away it's forcing you into a standard for yourself that you can't possibly meet and I didn't recognize that all I wanted to do was just move on I wanted to live life in the moment feel good when I could feel good that I could walk and that I could sleep without massive interruption and that not every moment felt like a crisis that's what I wanted to do yeah I think if I were driving down that road and all those symptoms hit me all of a sudden like that my first thought would be I better get to the hospital Right, And that, that's kind of ironic because that's the one thing that's causing all those symptoms, I guess, for yeah. you. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, so the hospital becomes the trigger, mm-hmm. right? And I just didn't want to be triggered. So everything that I was doing was, and, uh, was essentially taking this experience and pushing it down, not processing it, not, not realizing what was happening, just pushing it away. And, I just really wanted to live in the, the, the reduced symptoms for a while. So I was able to spend six weeks like this um, where things, I call it my blissful time. Mm-hmm. I pushed those feelings aside and I, the endometrial bleed was slowing. I was still doing well on Dr. Snow's protocol. I was not in remission or anything like that, but I was, I was not as sick. And I felt like this can only trend upwards at this time unfortunately that is not what happened and in the fall of 2020 things took an even darker turn the supplements from dr snow stopped working so well and very quickly the flare that i was already in it worsened dramatically so we're talking the 60 times a day in the washroom again i'm choking on the supplements because my esophagus was so inflamed i couldn't swallow i would try meditating I would uh, at this point my my husband and I were just desperate we would try different healers I would try more diets I started the specific carbohydrate diet the AIP diet anything that I could think of to help myself I would surround myself with this and I would go on YouTube and I would find videos of people who had healed themselves and wondered like what are they doing that I'm not doing like why are they healing why can't I be healed? What's wrong with me? Mm. And I remember thinking, okay, things can't possibly, can't possibly get worse. And they did. So by November of 2020, I started uh, having a lot of difficulty eating even my own safe foods. So uh, my safe foods at the time were yogurt and avocado, um, but everything caused me pain. And November 16th I woke up with this excruciating pain but it was different it was in my upper abdomen Uh it was this horrifying twisting feeling that felt like I was being stabbed repeatedly with this just increasing intensity and I remember this feeling of being like I just I can't be awake for this this is not tolerable I was sweating heart pounding like the heart was beating 180 beats per minute it was so fast and whatever this was it was escalating very quickly and I I needed to call an ambulance so after they ran tests at the hospital I found out that I was having an acute attack of pancreatitis oh no 
this was not something that I was prepared for. I was, I was told that we didn't know what the cause was. And usually pancreatitis is caused by alcohol abuse. And once you take out the alcohol, then there's no threat of the pancreatitis mm -hmm. or medication can cause it. But I wasn't on any medication and I didn't touch alcohol. So not knowing what was causing this was was agonizing and of course that fear is oh my gosh another life-threatening issue to deal with and just constantly worrying when is that going to come back so the treatment for pancreatitis for me because I couldn't take the medication was to go on a completely clear liquid diet for 72 hours so this would be the same diet you go on for a colonoscopy mm -hmm. but for three days Okay. And then you just slowly reintroduce food back into the diet. Um, and there's a, a blood serum lipase that's elevated with pancreatitis. So we were able to see this level coming down. Um, and sometimes it could take, you know, two weeks for the levels to drop back into the normal ranges. And for me, I, it took me uh, about two weeks. And but because I was already developing such a dysregulated relationship with food, I didn't know how to start introducing food again. I remember being afraid to eat and my husband tried feeding me yogurt and I was like, this guy's forcing me to ingest poison. Like it just felt so foreign and dangerous to me. Ugh. Yeah, so, so about three weeks after the initial attack, I, I would start relaxing into the feeling like, okay, this is isolated. The pancreatitis is resolved and I can maybe trust food again. But then the episodes happened again. And mm. only this time the pain was getting worse and it was forcing me into just this screaming in agony. And my husband called the ambulance and sure enough, it's another attack. And I didn't know how much more of this I could take. This is like, we're back to the broth diet again. And by this point, I'm losing 10 pounds a week. Mm. Needless to say, like these, <sighs> these episodes persisted along with the UC that was flaring uncontrollably and simultaneously with the spreading endometriosis flare. So it's all three of these incredibly painful conditions. And I can't take any medication to help ease any of this pain. And every other day being rushed to the hospital not knowing is this attack going to be the attack that kills me or am i going to die this slow uc death like it just either way i felt i felt like i knew that my body was dying mm -hmm. but it was before it was showing on the labs and by january 2021 i was so sick that i was living in the bathtub for five hours a day just being submerged in water was less painful but as soon as i would leave the tub the pain from all of these conditions was just so agonizing that all i could do was scream <sighs> i would try to find comfort in other rooms in the house that were just less frightening but the same thing would happen everywhere that i went so and at the hospital they couldn't they can't give me anything so how do you how do you deal with this it feels like every moment is is torture and this was this wasn't just hard for me this was hard for my husband he's watching this and he's seeing this and mm -hmm. it just became honestly it became a daily task just to stay awake just to be awake through all of this and i i kept asking myself like can you do this Didi? can you hang on for one more day 
And I would always come back with, yes, you can do this. Mm-hmm. But every, every person that goes through life-threatening illness or life-threatening experiences, they have a day that is the rock bottom day. And mm-hmm. mine was January 25th. Nothing super spectacular happened on January 25th, except that I was trying to take a shower and I had no strength. I needed to sit at the side of the tub and I wanted, all I was trying to do was rinse my hair out. I had conditioner in my hair and I couldn't, I couldn't raise my hand to run my own fingers through my hair. So there I would sit, I was crying in the shower and I had the shower curtain around me and I couldn't turn off the water. I tried calling for my husband to help me, but he couldn't hear my voice because my voice was so weak. Mm. He, he came, he found me and he was so forlorn like he just looked at me and said I'm never going to let this happen to you again and just it was just this heart-wrenching moment for the two of us just we were tied together in this endless cycle of despair and that is the moment that I feel I hit rock bottom I don't even know what to say that's uh so what happened the next day I guess yeah so I mean (laughs) I mean I'm I'm going to the hospital, right? And I'm, I, I'm on so many different supplements from, from different practitioners for all of my other conditions that it, it did make sense to me why my numbers on paper at the labs were looking so good. But the doctors were waiting until the labs were in danger before stepping in officially. And I, I remember saying like, I need a feeding tube. I need something or at least like a nutrient dense IV. Um, But they told me that I would never get approval for that because my lab numbers were still normal. Uh So I felt like I was falling through the cracks of the medical system. Here I I had stopped eating. Um, By November, I had lost, you know, 50 pounds in a very small amount of time. And the sad thing is, is I stopped being hungry. I was living off 70 to 200 calories a day. And this was just not acceptable. So I, I was taking every last moment of strength that I had and I decided to hit the books, do the research, hire a very skilled dietitian who has knowledge in digestive areas, including pancreatitis and UC. And she laid out this comprehensive eating plan for me, which was intimidating, but it had me adhering to a very strict low fat diet as well as consuming um, digestive enzymes with every meal to help control the pancreatitis attacks. This was challenging, but she was able to see that I was dying and she needed to step in and save my life, which is what she did. And by February, it all happened and it was in a very short amount of time. My labs now were beginning to reflect what I already knew, that my organs were failing the pancreas was eating itself my kidneys were failing i was urinating only once a day and it resembled syrup my heart was compromised my liver was affected and my crp which is um, an inflammation marker inside the body Uh was just skyrocketing and then lastly as any ibd or knows your fecal calprotectin test this is the test that measures the inflammation inside your colon. Mm -hmm. And I think normal is somewhere between like nine and 50. Right. Or something like that. And mine maxed out, it maxed out the test at 5,400. So Mm -hmm. now the doctors and, and the medical world is in panic mode. 
this is a mode that I had already been in for months, but nobody was listening to me. Mm-hmm. So I called Dr. Snow because he's the person that I trust because he's working on something with me that, that nobody else seems to understand. And even though his protocol um, wasn't able to hit the, the UC or to help the UC the way it was at the time, I understood why. He explained to me that his protocol was amazing but I needed something heavier to handle the inflammation inside the body because otherwise it's like, what did he say? It's like putting water, uh, putting a water bottle on a house fire. Mm-hmm. We had to tame the inflammation inside the body first. So he said to me, Dee, you've got to take a biologic. And I was so scared. And I would say to him, I am so afraid that this is going to kill me. And he said, if you don't take this, you're going to die. Wow. So I, I trust him. And I remember saying to my GI doctor, okay, you know, February 1st, I said, let's go ahead and start the process for the biologic. Yeah. So yeah, by February 5th, I was in the infusion chair. Mm-hmm. So when February 5th came, I was like armed with this new knowledge, but I was still so terrified I would have an <sighs> adverse reaction. Well, why wouldn't you be? I mean, you've had a, a reaction to everything and now you're taking a very serious biological, right? And mm-hmm. what but type Dr. were Snow. you taking? Just oh, out I, of sorry. I was, I, I, I'm, I was on Intivio. Okay. All right. And I remember Dr. Snow saying, you know, I can't remember how he worded it, but basically he said, don't worry, my protocol works really, really well with that biologic. So that is how I armed myself to go in on February 5th. I'm like, Dr. Snow's protocol is going to help this, this heavy medication work even better inside my system. Mm. And all the while while we're doing that, he spends time working on tweaking the protocol yet again, adding things, taking things away just to help it um, work alongside the Intivio. So I remember feeling like, okay, I have that in my corner too. And, and the most amazing thing happened. I did not have an allergic reaction to this medication. So let's talk about that just real quick. Cause yeah, I think you kind of alluded to where that power might've come from. Um, by believing mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to be a problem. Do you think there's well, power in that or what do you I think? Do. What's your explanation I, for that? I have two schools of thought All on right. belief. I think belief can be a very important, powerful tool in helping someone get through um, a difficult, challenging moment because it's um, if, if, if you have this power of belief, then there's, there's a lot of good that can come from that. At the same time, it's also important to, to know that your belief in something doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's going to be true. And I say that <laughs> out of respect for people who are afraid of putting bad things into the universe. Uh-huh. You know, like, oh, if I say something, then that's going to make it true. Um, later on in my experience with PTSD, I learned that that's not always the case, that you can say something and not have it become created just because you, be- just because you believe, believe it. it. But, but w- with my experience with b- my belief in Dr. Snow, it was putting me in a position 
where I, where my, like, if you want to look at it this way, it's like my central nervous system was a little more relaxed, even though I was incredibly heightened with fear in other areas. Uh But I needed, I needed to pile my faith onto something. And Dr. Snow was just this amazing resource for me to do that. That's awesome. Yes. So, Intivio's working? Yes. So okay, good. Intivio, <laughs> Intivio continued to work. And by my second loading dose, I woke up literally the next day to massively reduce symptoms, semi-formed stool. And I was like, what in the world? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember feeling happy, but not knowing how to trust that feeling. <laughs> you know? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Everyone that I've ever talked to can't believe that something good might happen like you doubt you when you see a semi-solid stool you're like that's that's that won't happen next time right (laughs) Right. and and so i was like exactly so i was like yay wait a second (laughs) right you start doubting it (laughs) yeah but within a few days from that i even had my first bowel movement with no blood mm. so you i know what you're thinking you're thinking like that's a change Mm -hmm. i should be happy right Mm -hmm. but no i i i couldn't attach to that feeling i remember feeling like yeah this is all gonna suck when it goes away i wouldn't allow myself to relax into the gratefulness of that moment because Mm. when i did that in the past with all of my history that moment was always ripped from me yeah like you were talking about in the past your days of bliss right those yes it's like every time I get happy about this, something, the next shoe drops. Right. And so I was recognizing, even even though it was ever so slightly, I was recognizing that I was beginning to fight an invisible fight, like a mental and emotional battle that I had no idea how to win. All right, Didi, we've been talking. This is so amazing, and I and I love hearing your whole story. I think it's important that we put it all out. But uh, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half about this. I think it's a good stopping point for us to uh, put a break on this and say, okay, this is where it's starting to turn, and let's do another episode where we focus more on how you got through all of this and how the PTSD affected you and give people some hope Uh, that's what this podcast is all about Uh, we have to talk about the bad stuff and i know it's not easy Uh, i hope everyone who's listening appreciates how difficult it is to even talk about what you've been through and i'm sure there are listeners that can relate to it Um, but let's come back and we'll spend even more time talking about um, the emergence of the anxiety and the PTSD and how you got through that. Does that sound good? Wonderful. All right. But let me just ask you real quick before we go. uh, Do you have gut hope? Steve, I have gut hope. Thank you so much, Dee. Thank you so much.